Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 1st, 2022, and this is show number 886. Coming from Lindsay and Nolan's house, uh, without Lindsay, actually, we've been uh, helping to take care of the kids this weekend, so we're having a lot of fun, but we have a show to do tonight. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is technically a light episode, but it's actually a bit of a heavy light, I don't know, approximately light, light adjacent uh, chit chat, because this has uh, Bart Bouchot on the show explaining why it's a good idea to have an email address on your own domain. He digs deep into all of the different technologies involved in owning a domain, forwarding email, he explains MX and NS records, and how to make sure you're never caught up in a spam scam. After digging deep, he then brings us up a level and explains the easy things you can do to have email forwarding that might protect you from some problems. I've worked my way through all of the technologies that Bart described, already done all of this, but I didn't understand a lot of it until Bart explained it to us in this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Now, when you listen to this episode, towards the end, you'll hear Bart describing the final list of easy steps to get email on your own domain. As he lists the steps by number, you'll hear me correct him and say, oh, you mean step five, not step four, as he says. We go back and forth a couple of times, both of us accusing the other one of changing the show notes, and we give up and we move on. After we were done recording, we discovered why we were talking about two different things, and it's kind of interesting. You see, Bart writes in a markdown in an app called Byword. He had mistakenly put in two number two steps in his list. I copy and paste Markdown into MarsEdit, my blogging platform, and it turns out that MarsEdit saw the incorrect syntax and thought, oh, silly Bart, you really meant the steps to be sequential, and it renumbered them for me in the render of Markdown. MarsEdit was very clever, but it sure confused both of us for a little while. You can, of course, find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice. I was listening to Clockwise, where the question passed around the four folks was whether they had an Apple card. All of them were big old Apple fans on the panel, but only one of the four had an Apple card. As they walked through the reasons why they didn't have one, it was apparent to me that they didn't understand why it is so cool. If three quarters of this panel didn't know why it was cool, that got me to wondering whether maybe there's a lot of Nocilla castaways who don't understand exactly why it's so cool, and, and maybe they know what it is, but they didn't think there'd be any advantages for them. Now, let me say this very clearly. The last thing in the world I would ever do on a podcast would be to give financial advice. I'm not doing that. To be very clear, I am not, A, urging you to have yet another credit card. B, trying to get you into debt by having multiple credit cards. C, suggesting that whatever way you manage your money is wrong. I'm not going to talk about interest rates. I'm not going to talk about fees. I'm not going to talk about whether it's even a good deal to get an Apple card. I just want to talk about how cool the technology is and how, for me, it makes dealing with an annoying subject quite a bit less annoying. Another reason I want to talk about the Apple card is because of a story my friend Diane told me about hers. But let's start at the beginning. Now, I know it's not generally hard to get an Apple card, or I'm sorry, to get any credit card. And in fact, it's pretty common to get a paper email, or sorry, a paper mail saying, you're pre-approved. But Apple takes it up a notch on how easy it is to acquire Apple Card. First of all, you apply online, and if approved, the credit card shows up automatically in Apple Wallet. Not in a week or a few days, it's more like minutes after you apply. You don't even have a physical card yet, and yet you can already use it to buy things. 
In fact, you don't technically ever have to get a physical card if you don't want to. The experience of acquiring is an Apple Card is just the beginning of how Apple Card is different from other credit cards. Now, if you do choose to get the physical card in the mail, there's no number printed on it at all. To see your card number, you need to open up Wallet and ask to see your Apple Card. Now, why would that be a good thing, to not be able to see your credit card number? The best way to explain it would be by telling you Diane's story. Whenever you make a transaction with Apple Card, you get a notification from Wallet. It tells you how much money you spent and to whom you sent the money. This isn't groundbreaking. Steve and I had an American Express card for, that would do that for us years ago. We really liked it. But these notifications can be informative when things go wrong. And this is where Diane's story comes in. To picture this, Diane was lying in bed doodling around on her iPhone first thing in the morning, and she suddenly got a notification from Wallet telling her that she had just spent a dollar with Go Gund Me. And that sounds legit, right? Well, this wasn't Diane's first rodeo with credit card fraud, so she knew that a very common thing for a credit card fraudster to do is to try to make a small payment just as a test and then buy something big if the test went through. And this is where the story gets really good. Diane opened up Wallet and selected her Apple Card. As soon as you do this, you get a beautifully formatted list of all your transactions. So Diane saw the $1 transaction to go gund me. She tapped on it and then tapped the button that says report an issue. From the next screen, there are four different options, one of which is dispute charge. That brought her into a chat with a Goldman Sachs Apple Card specialist. Now, Diane quickly explained the problem, and the specialist said, hey, do you want me to change your credit card number? Diane typed back, yes. The specialist said, okay, it's changed. Before Diane could even thank her in the text message, the specialist told her that whoever was trying to use her card had now tried to spend $2,800 on her credit card, but the transaction got blocked because in that very quick conversation in text, her credit card number was already changed. How cool is that? Credit card companies always have to refund you if your card was fraudulently used, but Diane stopped them in their tracks. And Goldman Sachs slash Apple never had to deal with the miscreants. Big win for both sides, maybe even more for Goldman Sachs because they didn't have to cover that $2,800 charge or try to chase down who did it. But there's another way this was a big win for Diane. Apple and Goldman Sachs have access to a double secret scrambled code in the card, which means as soon as it was changed on Goldman Sachs' end, Diane's physical card and her Apple Wallet version of her card both knew this new number. There was no need to wait for a new card to arrive in the mail. So this story really illustrates what I think is the best feature of Apple Card, and I do thank Diane for letting me tell her story. Now, in researching for this article to make sure I have my facts straight, I discovered two more ways you can protect yourself from fraud with Apple Card. You can actually lock the card with a tap of a button in Wallet. When you're ready to use it again, simply tap the button again to unlock the card. Now, if you don't have your card set for any recurring payments, this would be a really stick slick way to manage your credit card. Now, here's another trick Apple has up its sleeve in Apple Card. We already know that the credit card number is changeable on the fly because Goldman Sachs changed it for Diane. But you know that three-digit security code on the card, sometimes called a CVV? With Apple Card's advanced fraud protection, you can set up that code to rotate periodically. If you're bad at memorizing it like I am, it might not be that bad to have to look at in wallet every time you need to use your card. Might stop you from even having to go to all of the effort of tapping the report of abuse button because it would be that much harder to fake if that CVV was rotating. Now, while all the security stuff with Apple Card helps me sleep at night, 
I'm constantly delighted with the interface of the card and wallet. You know, with a normal credit card, you get a statement with a long table of charges where the merchant's name, I don't know, it often looks like a catwalk on your keyboard. With Apple Card, you see human-friendly names in your transaction list. Instead of the cryptic description you see on other card statements like AMZN MKTP US star 1A2001WA1, that's a real thing, instead of seeing that on Apple Card, it simply says Amazon. And it even has a thumbnail of the Amazon box logo with that half smile on it. Now, if the merchant doesn't supply a logo, at least you'll see some sort of icon to give you a visual cue, like a knife and fork if it was a restaurant. Even paying your credit card bill is more fun with Apple Card. Okay, maybe not fun, but a little more entertaining. When you open your card, you can see your card balance at a glance and how much more you can charge for that month. If your bill is due, you tap the pay button and you see a circular donut with a slider inside that goes around the circle. As you slide the, drag the slider around, the color changes from red to green, showing how much more of it you're deciding to pay. And at the same time, it's telling you how much less interest it will cost you as you pay more. So no other credit card I know of uh, that I've ever used tells you that kind of actionable information right at your fingertips. You can see I'm saving money. If I can pay another 20 bucks, that's going to save me this much in interest. Now, I have a bad habit of waiting until the end of the year to make my charitable contributions, and as a result, my credit card gets a lot of exercise in December, along with all the gift buying. Last year, I hit my credit card limit before I finished paying all of the charities I wanted to help. While all credit cards will let you pay off your balance ahead of time, with Apple Card, I simply had to tap pay early and drag the circular slider around farther to clear my balance. No messing around in a clumsy web interface to make an extra prepayment. You can even make a request to have your limit increased right within the app interface. While Apple Card does let you view previous month's statements, an early complaint was that you couldn't download those statements. Apple has filled that need in two ways. You can export from your iPhone to CSV, OFX, QFX, or QBO. I don't have any idea what those last three are, but I'm guessing they're things like for importing into tools like Quicken or QuickBooks. At least that's what I guess they are. They also created a very simple web interface where you can download very pretty PDFs of your statements. Now, personally, I use the CSV option since that's the quickest way to a nice spreadsheet as nature intended. Now, I hope that my explanation of Apple Card has educated you a little bit if you didn't know the benefits. Being able to protect myself from fraud better than with other cards and having a slick, easy interface to review my transaction, transactions has made dealing with an annoying subject much less annoying. Did I mention you also get 3% back on, cat, on Apple products? Anyway, I'd like to finish this with a formal apology for telling you how cool Apple Card is if you live outside of the United States. I know this will have been particularly painful for Bart to hear. Hopefully, Apple will expand to more countries soon. All right, let's hear our very last interview from the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference. Blind people like to keep their phones in their pockets, not out while they're trying to walk and, and uh, pay attention to their cane and that sort of thing. But they need to be able to interact with their phone at the same time. And a company called Hable is ho hoping that their product will make this a little bit easier. So I'm here with uh, Frank van Velsenis. Hi, great to be here. Uh, you challenged whether I could uh, say his Dutch name, and I think I nailed it. Really well, better than most people. Yeah, great job. <laughs> All right, so talk to us about Able. What is it? This is uh, audio and video, so uh, pure audio. Describe what's in your hand. Yeah. Pretend your listeners are blind. 
Okay, well, so what I'm holding in my hand, it's like a really small controller. It's around the size of a phone, it's a little thicker, uh, and you have eight buttons on one side. And these are physical buttons, so that makes it easy to control your entire phone with physical keys. So we take over the input of voiceover, talkback, and we make it a little easier. And this works with uh, iOS and Android or just iOS? Uh, iOS, Android, tablets uh, works with all. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So it looks like the uh, standard Braille, six Braille keys, but it's also got two black keys to the side. Yeah, the six Braille keys and two function keys. And we use Braille, but actually a lot of our users don't know Braille. It's really based on making navigation easy, and a lot of users will learn Braille in the process. Oh, very cool, very cool. So uh, do you want to demonstrate? Do you want to do what we did before? You you talk with the microphone and I get to hold the, uh, the oh, controller? Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's okay. good. I'll give so you the I'm going to hold the table and you yeah. got to hold that up. All right. If I say anything interesting, bring the mic near me. <laughs> I will, I will. Um, so, so right now we're on my home screen on the phone and we're first going to do basic navigation. So going an item forward or backwards. So moving an item forwards, you have the two big function keys. So you hold down the left function key and you keep holding it down and you press the other function key once. Uh, am I doing that? So, I think we are connected. Is it working? Not, not yet. Ah, He's got to wake it up. I'm going to wake it up, so you should feel oh, some vibrations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's try it again. All right, when, so, it, when it's talking, put the mic down there so it's oh, yeah. there too. Okay, okay so I'm going to hold the left button and then the right button to, yes. to move. Whoops, oh. I held it too long. Held it too long, so we go back to the home screen by just holding down the H in Braille. So dot one, two, and five. No, nope. the opposite of that. Yes, the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Hold it down a little longer. Okay, tell people on the audio what's happening. Okay. I'm messing this all up. I'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> We're almost there. Yeah, there we go. We're back on the home screen. So hold down the left big function key and keep okay. holding it down and just press the other function key once. There you go. Okay. okay. So it just moved from notes over to, to books yeah. and now to. Uh, the app store, how do yeah. I go backwards to note? So backwards, you just reverse your action. So you hold down the other function key and press the left function key once. Oh, and you can, go. yeah. So actually, once you do it, you, can, you get the hang of it quite quickly, right? It's Yeah, yeah. yeah not, I, I, being able to know which one's one, two, and five, that threw yeah, me, but yeah, I, I could yeah. probably do it the second time. Yeah, <laughs> okay, great. So that is moving forward and backwards, and then opening or entering an application is just by pressing both of them at the same time. Both function buttons. Yeah, both function buttons okay. at the same time. I'm pressing them down. Yeah. And. Oh. Whoa! Okay, I did it wrong. Hmm. Yeah, it oh, takes a little I'm, of getting used yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I was doing. I was actually being too hard on. Yeah. So I hold down okay. both buttons. Yeah. You can do it long, short. Doesn't really matter. Uh, so there, there you go. Yeah. So uh, now I'm in notes. Yes. Just open it now up. we're in notes, and now so some people that know Braille, you can type in Braille grade one or two. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't know Braille, we just have a shortcut for dictation. Uh, okay. So if you hold down the dot two, the second button. Uh, the two, just, the second yes, button? in the middle. Just hold it down, and now you can start dictating. Uh, okay, just open up dictation inside notes. <laughs> yes. And now, how do I stop it? Hold both again, buttons down? No, hold all two again. So oh, just uh, hold, hold yeah. the two again. Yeah. And there you go. Now it's uh, been dictated. So, actually, a lot of our users they will start learning real as they learn to use the Hable one, and because it's only typing, it doesn't take that much effort actually and you'll learn it quite, uh, quite yeah, quickly. This might be a good way to learn too. So yeah. how much is, is Hable? So we're actually just launched in Europe and we're now here for the first time in the US. We're pre-launch uh, and here at CSUN we're taking pre-orders for $299. That's not very bad at all. Yeah. And that comes with the software. So it comes with everything. 
uh, two years, we will have updates for the coming two years for sure, and probably for five years. And actually, we'll have a whole starting guide. So we have a whole guides and Hable Academy with all videos which are audio driven that teach you how to do your personal banking, how to open Wait, email. You just said audio driven. This is for the blind. Yes. So it's it's a video. But just focus on audio. Videos okay. are supporting there. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's just mean. <laughs> yeah, we do it in sign language for the blind. No, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Where would people find out more about Hable? Um, yeah, you can check out our website, which is uh, imhable.com. And Hable's H-A-B-L-E. Very good. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you very much for having me. If you've ever bought an Apple product in the last couple of years, you've probably noticed that they have the option to trade in an old device to offset the cost of your new machine. I noticed it when it was first introduced as an option, but I didn't take advantage of it until very recently. As Mac users, we all know that our devices hold their value for a long time. It's not uncommon to have a non-Apple friend ask, I think I want to try the Mac. Do you know where I can find a cheap, good used Mac? And the answer is always, nope. You can find a good used Mac but it won't be cheap. Now, it's not an invalid question. It's just more of a matter of perspective. The purchase price for a new Mac can be significantly higher than for a comparable PC. But what is not commonly realized amongst PC buyers is that the significant price difference is maintained when you're ready to sell your computer. I think understanding this offset is important when making a purchasing decision. Let's walk through an example. Let's price out one of my most recent iMacs, I'm sorry, most recent Macs, a 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro. It had a 2.4 gigahertz i9 with 32 gigs of RAM and a 2 terabyte SSD. Now, the way I figure out what a device is worth on the open market is to do a search for the exact model on eBay. Now, the trick is to figure out what the equivalent product has actually sold for. So don't look at the asking price or even the buy it now price because it may not have actually sold for that. Instead, after doing a search, look down in the left sidebar towards the bottom and you'll see a section entitled Show Only, and from that list, choose Sold Items. This way, you know that the device actually sold for that price, not some person's wishful thinking of what their product was worth. I used this method to search for my 2019 MacBook Pro on eBay, and I looked at the last 10 sold, and on average, they sold for $2,018. That's right, over $2,000 for a three-year-old laptop. Now, I searched for a comparably configured Windows PC with a 15-inch screen, 32 gigs of RAM, 2 terabyte SSD, and an Intel Core i9. The Dell XPS 15 7590 and 950X series had a few sales, and they were exactly equivalent. The average final selling price for those was $1,341. So the Dell machine is selling used for a full third less than the Mac. Now, I'm positive there was a huge price difference in the original selling price of each of them when they were new, and maybe it was even that big of a gap. But I'm doing this comparison only to demonstrate that the cost difference is maintained or even widened on resale. Now, if you're willing to put yourself through the aggravation of selling your devices yourself, <laughs> you go girl, you will most likely get more for them than by trading them into Apple. I have sold my Macs and iPhones on the open market before, and here's the simple process I used to follow. I start by pulling a dozen or so actual prices sold for equivalent devices on eBay. I look at the photos, I see if each sale I found was by an individual or a company, and I always to toss out the company ones because they always skew the price high. 
I also throw out any results I get from, like if they're actually selling something broken, or if, maybe if the seller's really unskilled at photographing the device, that can often bring in a really low price. Then I average the remaining results, and that's the price I try to get. I painstakingly clean and set up my devices on my dining room table. I move distracting things out of the way. I get the lighting just so. And of course, I save the original packaging next to it so it looks brand new. This process takes hours. And in the end, I never get that average price I found on eBay. Invariably, one of my friends or someone who really can't afford the true price or the true value wants the device and I just go ahead and drop the cost. Now, I could be tougher on these friends, but it invariably happens after I've been trying to sell something for weeks. So I'm just sick of it and I just want to get it out of my house. So it's pretty easy to talk me down in price after a couple of weeks. So the result is I do a lot of work. I have a lot of aggravation. And in the end, I'm always sad because I didn't get what I think it was worth. We're all delusional about what we think our devices are worth, even if we do all the research I described above. And that's why this article is actually about the happiness and joy that is the Apple trade-in experience. No taking photos, no figuring out where to list it, no answering emails from people offering you half price, no lowering the price because it's a friend who wants to buy it. You click the trade-in button, answer a few questions about the device's make and model, and whether it's functional or not, and Apple offers you a price. If you like the price, when you place your order, they ship you an empty box you stick the device in the box and you give it to the delivery service Apple have special, specified for you. When Apple de- receives your device, if it's as you described it, they'll credit you the money, as hassle-free as it could possibly be. Now, what about that price Apple offers you? Do you get what it's worth? Well, that's actually hard to de- answer definitively. I don't have a lot of data points to validate this, but in my small, simple set of evidence, it varies quite a bit. Let's go through a few examples. So trade-in data point one. Steve traded in his 2017 27-inch iMac. In 2017, it was a top-of-the-line quad-core 4.2 gigahertz i7 with 32 32 gigabytes of RAM and a 2-terabyte SSD. Now, in my experience, a five-year-old desktop is notoriously difficult to sell on the open market. But it wasn't hard to sell back to Apple when he bought a Mac Studio. He ticked the box to trade it into his purchase, and Apple gave him $640. Now, I checked eBay prices, and the average of five equivalent models sold this year, the value would have been $1,312. So he got roughly half of what it was worth on the open market. But remember, I've never gotten what it was worth on eBay. In reality, this is probably more like maybe a 25% reduction in what he could have gotten. And don't forget, if you sell through eBay, you have to pay to ship an iMac. So that would even narrow that price difference quite a bit. All right, trade-in data point number two. Our buddy Ron just bought a 14-inch M1 MacBook Pro and traded in his 2019 13-inch MacBook Pro, 2.4 gigahertz, i5 with 8 gigabytes of RAM and a 512 gigabyte SSD. Looking again at eBay sold listings for his exact model, it appears to have been worth around $582. Guess what? Ron got $685 for his trade in. He actually got 18% more on his trade in than he could have maybe gotten on eBay. I think that's astonishing. Ron lives a charmed life, though. All right, trade in example number three. Probably the most surprising example I found was when I helped my friend Nancy buy a new 16 inch M1 MacBook Pro. 
She keeps her Macs a very long time, so I wasn't optimistic when I suggested she check to see if maybe Apple would give her trade-in value for her old Mac. I told her, I said, probably not, and you know, they'll give you, they'll recycle it for you responsibly, even if they uh, don't pay you anything for it. You see, her machine was seven years old. It was a 2.3 gigahertz i7, 15-inch MacBook Pro with 16 gigabytes of RAM and a 512 gigabyte SSD. Are you ready? Apple gave her $310 for it. I was positively shocked. I didn't even run the numbers on eBay for this one because $310 for a seven-year-old laptop seems more than fair. With those three data points, I'm not sure we can come to a conclusion on how to know whether you'll get a good deal from Apple on trade-in. But I do know that in all three cases, all these people had to do was to get paid was poke a button on the website and then put the Mac in a pre-labeled box and drop it off at UPS. Now, I said that doing a trade-in is hassle-free with Apple, but I'm going to add an amendment clause to that. It's hassle-free as long as Apple waits to send you the return box so that you have time to set up the new device before sending back the old one. In Steve's case, he bought the Mac Studio and a Studio Display to go with it. He received the return box for the iMac first, then he got the Mac Studio, but the Studio Display took another couple of weeks to arrive. The problem is that Apple only gives you 14 days to return the trade-in. I think it's 14, maybe it's 10, I'm not even sure, but they only give you a limited time to return the trade-in. But he didn't have the monitor yet, so he couldn't do that. Okay, technically we do have spare monitors around the house, but he shouldn't have had to rely on that. When time was running short on sending the box back, I suggested he call Apple and ask for an extension. It seems like, I thought it was a completely reasonable request, right? Well, he spent 20 minutes trying to convince the first person at Apple to let him have a delay in the return. Then he escalated to a senior advisor who wasted another 20 minutes of his time before begrudgingly saying yes. But it gets a little bit worse. So Apple prides itself on how environmentally conscious they are, right? Well, the only way to extend the return time is for Apple to send you a whole new box. Now, an iMac, it doesn't require a tiny box, right? The box for an iMac is gigantic. So they paid to have trees cut down, turned it into cardboard, got it folded into a box shape, have a, bo a label created, and then use trucks burning dead dinosaurs to drive a second nine-pound box to our house. All of this instead of just emailing him a new PDF of a new label. It was so absurd that I had Steve take a photo of me standing next to the two boxes stacked on top of each other, so I can send it to Apple with a gentle letter suggesting, maybe you could do better on this one. So the bottom line is that as long as you get the return box in time, the Apple trade-in program is hassle-free with that one caveat, and it's usually a pretty good deal. Now, I checked into it, and you can do the trade-in before you want to buy something so you can get credit towards a, a purchase at a later date. Now, in the old days, I would say I was going to sell a product, and I would never get around to doing it. My drawers are filled with old devices I really meant to sell. I hope this encourages some of you to dig through your old equipment, especially older Macs, and give Apple trade-in program a try. And remember, if you're not buying something right now, you can still use that Apple gift card to use at any time. So you can check out the Apple trade-in program at the link in the show notes at apple.com. This week, I'd like to thank two people for the support of the show. Every six months or so, Kenneth Kleinman goes to podfeet.com slash PayPal, and he donates a generous amount to help keep the microphones live at the Podfeet podcast. This was one of those wonderful months. 
Chris Blaine has been a longtime contributor using Patreon, and this week they went to podfeet.com slash Patreon and raised their pledge by 50%. How cool is that? If you've been listening to the shows we make here for a while and you get benefit from them and you enjoy an ad-free listening experience, I would be delighted if you'd find a way to show that appreciation like Kenneth and Chris. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing fine now that my microphone works. <laughs> yeah, it took us 40 minutes to get a USB mic working, but uh, we cracked the code between us, right? Yeah. They, they, uh, we should have paid attention better to the old cliche, turn it off and turn it on again. I just unplugged both ends well, and you, plugged it back in. But you turned a lot of other things on and off first. We just didn't turn the right thing off and on. That is true. We, we assumed software problems. <laughs> it was hardware. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's dig in. Okie dokie. So a little bit of follow up first. Uh, the Pegasus story continues to roll on. Um, we now have new reporting that Spain apparently abused Pegasus to spy on Catalan politicians. I don't know how much of that makes the news in America, but it's kind of a big deal that Catalonia is trying to break away from Spain and the Spanish government are none too happy about it. So it's not in- oh. entirely surprising given that they were prepared to literally arrest politicians for running a democratic referendum where people voted to leave Spain. Mm. So anyway, yeah, that's the ick. In terms of social media news, Instagram are changing their algorithm. They are going to uh, basically promote things that are more original and they're going to improve the tagging of products and people in... I guess, photos or videos if it's Instagram. So I think the idea is to stop people just re... uh, What's the retweet equivalent of Instagram? (laughs) Re-insting? I don't know. Yeah, so (laughs) basically what they want to do is to have more original content being more prominent on the network instead of everyone just reposting the same thing over and over again. We shall see how it works out for them, but it doesn't sound like... it, It sounds better in the abstract. Yeah, it certainly does. So we shall see. You can now ask Google to remove your phone number, email address, or physical address from their search results. Uh, This is part of their their enhanced protections. Uh, Anti-doxing is what this is about. So if people are trying to make your life miserable by posting your real-world details online, you can ask Google to remove it from their results. So that's... Wow. Yeah, again, a positive development. Yeah. And then we switch to the less positive side of the ledger. Um... Vice got their got their hands on. Vice were handed by a leaker, an internal report generated within Facebook uh, that warns Facebook management that they don't know what data they have or what they're doing with it, and that they actually can't honestly tell regulators what they do or what they don't do, and that this is a really big problem and that they need to get their house in order. Wait, they don't know what data they have and they don't know what they do with it? Correct. They have a, quote, data free-for-all policy. Whatever they collect, their programmers just use however they see fit. (laughs) They don't classify it. They don't... Or at least they didn't when this report was written. Okay. It doesn't surprise... Nothing in the report surprised me. It was just... I had hoped to be pleasantly surprised the other way, and I wasn't. 
Uh, Facebook spokespeople say, oh, no, 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 we're really good about it now. Honestly, we're fine. We're fine. Um, but it's an inter- what's great is they have these internal reports. This isn't even like an external company audited them and found this. They found this. Yes. But I guess that is positive that they were... Only if they do something about it. True, true. But step one is to have an internal report, I suppose. Yeah, we should. With any other company, I'd say that's that's good news. But um, based on the reporting that Frances Haugen brought out, where they had leaked, she leaked internal reports that said we're doing all these horrible things, and they went, "Yeah, but we're going to keep doing it because we make money on it." Yeah, in this case, I think the difference is that they are afraid that they're going to end up in trouble with reg. Basically, they could they can see the regulation train coming down the tracks, and mm. they. They want to have their ducks in a row so they can stop. Basically, they want to have the data classification in place so that they can stop doing what they're doing now when they're forced to, but not until then. Great. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, that's where we are. Um, and I think I wasn't really sure where to put this in the in the in the show notes. Um, and I don't really want to talk about Elon Musk buying Twitter, but it did catch my eye that within 24 hours of the news breaking, the EU Commission uh, had someone running to a microphone to go, by the way, we still expect you to obey European law. Really? Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I guess he could he could consider that. He could, so... Yeah, let's not talk about Elon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I just thought it was interesting that the EU were like straight on this going, by the way, just because Elon says he's a free-for-all Nazi, sorry, uh, extreme... Not extremist. No, he did say extreme. Anyway, you know what I mean. He said said something dumb. Um, And finally, because I don't want to end on that, um, Apple have issued a firmware update for their AirTags where they have tweaked the noise that AirTags make when they're away from their owner. Uh, Apparently, this noise is easier for our ears to directionalize. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So they they did say Ah. they were going to tweak with it. So the firmware update is doing its thing. and I assume it just sort of does it on its own. You don't have to do anything. We actively when your AirTag is near your phone, it will decide at some stage to update itself at its own volition. Okay. I can't. I'm still loving my AirTags, man. I I just especially like we're we're at Lindsay's house right now, mm. and knowing that uh, if I try to leave the house without my shoe bag, my luggage, or my backpack, or my purse. I will be notified. You won't get far. Yeah, you'll you'll be a little bit down the road and your iPhone will say, by the way, you've left all this stuff behind. Oopsie. And I know it'll work because every time we go to Starbucks or we go to we went to a lake yesterday, we got all these notifications going, You left this behind, you left this behind, you left this behind. So Yeah, same happened when I was at my parents the other weekend. We went out for a walk and the first thing it said was, You've left your umbrella behind. It's like, Yeah, it's in the car because it's not raining. (laughs) Which is nice. I thought that was good. So we have one deep dive. Um which is very much related to our Elon story, I guess. So a few weeks ago, we had a deep dive on the Digital Markets Act in the EU, the DMA. Um, And that was a very substantial piece of legislation and it had a very big impact on Apple and, frankly, all of the tech sector. But I did say to you it was part one of two. Uh, So the Digital Markets Act was about people who sell stuff online and that there was a Digital Services Act about people who run services online. And the DSA, as it's known, that has reached 
this, a similar point to where the DMA reached when we talked about it a few weeks ago, which is that we have a, quote, provisional political agreement, and it is now ready to be voted on by the Parliament and the Council of Ministers. Now, this one is a little bit different, actually. So last time we had a trialogue and we all learned the new words, but this time there was no trialogue. It was just a dialogue between the Parliament and the Council of Ministers. And I get the impression it's because there's a different commissioner running the show here. And it's also actually a substantially simpler bill. It's got way less technical detail and it's much more about setting out responsibilities rather than fine-grained detail. Um but it's in some way similar. Um, it is definitely primarily aimed at big companies. But unlike the DMA, the DSA sets rules for every service provider who you, who does business with Europeans, not only the big ones. It's just the big ones have oh. way more they have to do. But there is stuff okay. for everyone. So the first thing is that they have said that they're going to target the, the 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 most enforcement and the most responsibilities are going to fall on what they are defining as very large online platforms or VLOPs and very large online ser- search engines or VLOSs. Uh, and the <laughs> threshold for very large is 45 million monthly active users in the EU. So How many? 45 million monthly active within the EU. What a specific number. Yeah. You think once you get up into the tens of millions, it'd be a round number, but okay. There must be somebody at 40 and somebody at 50. They're trying (laughs) to catch the 50 and not the 40. That... That's the most plausible explanation I can come up with, yeah. It's, it, uh, or there was some okay. sort of compromise done where it's like one party wanted 40 and one party wanted 50 and they split the difference. So this is affecting all digital online services, but it's not really. It's only the ones over 45 million active users? No. Those are up for extra responsibilities. It affects everyone, okay. but there are way... It dramatically more affects the big ones, but the, the small ones actually have some new rules. So I'm actually going to start with what everyone has to do, because I think a lot of that is actually the most interesting. So the big thing that every service provider in Europe has to do is that they have a responsibility to safeguard minors using their online services. So what that basically means is you can't say, oh, we didn't know. You actually have to... Do, do reasonable stuff. You have a legal responsibility not to be negligent. And the most specific thing, I think, in the whole thing, an outright ban on targeted advertising aimed at children. It is illegal to have targeted ads at kids. Really? That's big. So, the Disney Channel... Well, okay, so targeted ad means that it's based on you, the person, tracking cookies. Okay, okay, got you. Not that you're not trying to... Yeah, no, you can have ads <laughs> aimed at kids in the general sense, but not aimed at Bob. Okay, got you. Okay. <laughs> and then there were three other things everyone else has to do that caught my eye. Um, so all online marketplaces have a duty of care to ensure that they display appropriate information on products and services, regardless of the seller, uh, 
And the idea is that it's not acceptable for someone like Amazon to knowingly sell counterfeit charges that could kill you. They have a duty of care. So you can't just basically say, well, we're just, we're just a reseller. Not our problem. It's like, well, it is okay. now. And the other thing is that dark patterns, i.e. intentionally misleading UI, is illegal for all online services. You can't try to trick people. So Wait, that, that, so that eliminates everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, a lot of this is... Who la- isn't trying to fake their content to look like it's not an ad and not trying to get you to do what you want them to do? But okay. Yeah, so, I mean, this look, this is... Exactly what that law means is going to take a lot of figuring out. But as a general rule, you are you have a duty of care, which you didn't have before. You could just say, mm, not me. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was perfectly fine to mislead people and say, well, they click the button to say they agree. Like, yeah, but you made the, you know, the small print so small and it's white on a white background. So they agreed. Well, those kind of things are gone. <laughs> or they are, you know, you okay. could go to court and say this is deceptive practices and the court can decide. Uh, and there is a transparency requirement for recommendation engines. So if you are recommending things to people, you need to have something on your website somewhere that explains how you're doing the recommending. So what is it okay. you're measuring? So that's a... I don't know how that will work out in real life. I will be really curious to read how the recommendation engines work. So that's for everyone. Right? Those four things affect everyone doing business in Europe with a who is a service provider so that it's the online digital was it uh, online search engines and online platforms then you have the big guys what do the big guys have to do and the single biggest thing in here is that they must run an annual systematic risk assessment so every year they have to analyze their own service systematically looking for six things and they have to figure out ways of reducing the risk year over year. So they have to figure out the risk that their platform is disseminating illegal content and try to reduce that risk. They have to figure out the risk of adverse effects on fundamental rights. So that's under the European Charter of Human Rights. They have to figure out the risk that their service may have on democratic processes and public safety. They have to figure out how their services could have adverse effects on minors, how their services could increase gender-based violence, and how their services could adversely affect their users' physical and mental health. And they have to take steps to reduce these. So if you go back to that Francis Haugen thing about how Facebook are like, yeah, we know we're making people anorexic. Well, there is literally going to be a law against not doing something about that. So they have to do the analysis yearly, mm-hmm. the assessment yearly, and uh, systematically do it, and then look at the risk of each of these things and implement things to reduce the risk and then check it again the next year. Correct. Every year, forever. I wonder if there's any rule of whether their <laughs> whether they're effective, their uh, fixes need to be effective or not. Well, that's where we're back to. This thing is very much a broad responsibility. So this is like the basis for suing someone rather than, you know, you must do these five things, tick the box, tick the box, tick the box. This is very much a roles and responsibilities kind of a law. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you, companies have a fiduciary duty under American law. It's it, it's very broad. It's very different to the DMA, which was much more prescriptive. So th- this is much more about what your responsibilities are. So to to be... 
back us up just a little bit. Mm. Um, this is about platforms and search engines. So services is kind of a broad word. Yes. I mean, Microsoft 365 is a, is a service, but that's not part of this. I don't think that it's, will fall into their definition. It's, it's your Twitters, your Facebooks, your Amazons. So it's what humans would call social media? Kind of, yeah. To be, yeah, to be honest, I, I think, but the, I guess Any call it the digital social clients, media. probably? Chat clients? I would have, yes. I would be pretty sure that stuff like, if I mean, Telegram your, your had... your signals? Yeah, if, if they have 45 million active users, they're probably coming to this too. Hmm. But de- Interesting. Yeah. I don't see any way to see this as a bad thing unless you're the one who has to work on your own stuff. Well, there are two, there are three things that are causing people angst. The fact that you have to reduce the dissemination of illegal content, uh, reduce adverse effects on fundamental rights, and protect the democratic process and public safety. Because those three things inevitably lead to censorship. Right? If you're in the middle of a uh, pandemic and you are spreading vaccine misinformation, you are harming the public safety. Right. And is there a... a definition of censorship that's not inflammatory well i mean at the end of the day absolutely regardless of what anyone says every single platform censors because even in the most toxic parts of the internet there are things you can't do mm-hmm. so where you decide to call it censorship versus moderation is so with the eye of the beholder Right, right. That's what I was thinking about. So censorship has uh, is an inflammatory word, right? If I say you're censoring me, that's true. That doesn't mean, boy, I did something bad, and you should have taken that down. Yeah, I mean, I it guess means you're against my fundamental human right. Is what that means when I say it. I mean, the reason I use the word censorship is because that's what people are. are that is the people who are angsty. That is what they are saying. Mm-hmm. I right. I am not one of those people, but I was sort of trying my best to. But the thing is, censorship is doesn't have to be inflammatory. It's the way we think of it and use it. Uh, the dictionary definition is the suppression or prohibition of any parts of books, films, nudes, etc. that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. So yeah, Which is that sort is sort of like those top three things. Right? In fact, that pretty much tallies ex- oh, not exactly exactly, but very closely with points one, two, and three on that list, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Politically and unacceptable is where you re- probably where the uh, rubber meets the road. That's certainly the most wishy-washy one. What isn't on that list you had there was illegal content, which seems to me the easiest one. It's like yeah. you know, CSAM is not acceptable, yeah. right? Which I think we can all get away with. Stuff so like- this is in the same kind of category as the DMA that it's a proposal being put forward. Well, this one seems to be on. This one seems to have already been further ahead because they didn't have to have all three parties arguing. They only had to have the ministers in the parliament arguing. They've now reached agreement, and they don't have to go draft more detail. This is now ready for formal approval. Okay. So this is ready for a vote. Sorry, two votes. The council of ministers have to vote yay or nay on it, and the parliament has to vote yay or nay on it, and then it is baked. Okay. So we shall see. Hmm. Now there are, so that that is the headline thing here, that the large companies, and this only affects the large companies. So that is the headline thing. The other thing actually that I forgot to mention at the start is that the big companies are going to be regulated centrally 
from the European Commission, which I think are either in Brussels or Strasbourg, but they're going to be regulated Europe-wide by one agency, the European Commission. Small companies are going to be regulated by their local governments like they are today. Oh. So basically, it's extra scrutiny for the big guys. Now, there's also two other extra responsibilities I want to draw attention to. Uh, So the first is that everyone has to um, offer transparency of recommendations, but the big companies have a second responsibility. They have to give people the option to have recommendations that are not based on their personal data. So you basically have to be able to get a neutral recommendation out of the big companies. Say, say that again, a neutral recommendation to do what? So if you have, if you're, say you're on Amazon and they're offering to sell you more stuff, they have to give you a mechanism to say, I want you to offer stuff not based on your profiling of me, but just based on generic information. Okay. So you need to have a non-tracking version of recommendations. Hmm. So everyone has to be transparent. The big guys have to say, and you don't get to look at me. You only get to look at what. So if I look at a book on astronomy, you're allowed to recommend me stuff based on the book. You're not allowed to recommend me stuff based on the fact that you know that I was looking at uh, a page on Max yesterday. Or that you... Interesting. You know, it's kind of funny because that is probably the one case where I would want them to do that. I think it would depend on the context whether or not I want them to and I think the concept of the law saying you have to have a switch and I don't think the law even says the law doesn't say you have to toggle it off the law just says there has to be a toggle somewhere okay now also you mentioned that uh, the little the littler companies would be from their company of origin would be policing them on Mm. this but the big companies would be the European Commission yes or um, but the big company the big companies aren't in Europe Right, exactly. So if they're doing business anywhere in Europe, then, and they all have European headquarters mostly in Dublin, which is why at the moment, the Irish Data Protection Commissioners is where Facebook is regulated from. But under this, that will change to the European Commission, which is probably better because the Irish Data Protection Commissioners, they have a conflict of interest because Ireland is darn keen to attract these companies to Ireland. So (laughs) they're trying to offer as many carrots as they can, and they're also being forced to wield a stick. (laughs) So much better for Ireland that the stick be wielded from Brussels. Yeah. And they're just better resourced as well. We're a small island off the West Coast. What are we doing policing Facebook for all of Europe? (laughs) You know? Now, the last thing I just want to draw attention to, this again only affects the big companies. There was a last-minute addition to the law that was not in the early versions of this law, and I think you'll understand where it came from when I tell you that the latest provision allows for the European Commission to decide that there is a crisis, and when they decide that there is a crisis, they get to impose restrictions on the large organisations, and they give two examples, pandemics and wars. I can't imagine why that was on their mind while they were writing this. Really? Oh, wow, that's great. Now, there's a f- By the way, if it, the, I, I do want to point out how funny the acronym is, because it's VLOP, V-L-O-P. He's been saying V-Losses, but it's V-O-L-S-E-S, so it's V-Loses. <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know how you... Like, don't let bureaucrats write names for things. <laughs> anyway. 
Maybe it's better in Okay, so so this is like say, saying then that uh if we uh if we have a war breakout they can do lots of more effective things in terms of dissemination of illegal content and public safety. Yeah, the That's the idea right. would be that they could do something like say that no service is allowed to uh publish tweets from say the Sputnik News Agency. Yeah. There is some pushback on this because the commission get to decide there is an emergency and the commission get to decide what to do about it. And some people are saying maybe it shouldn't be the commission who gets to do both of those things. Maybe one of those things should go to the parliament or something. So right. there, there is some controversy. Just a little separation there. Yeah, so yeah. there's some controversy there and that may or may not get tweaked uh, before final passage. But really, for the for the vast majority of this, to me, is absolutely fine. And even the, the 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 free speech stuff, to me, I I think it strikes a reasonable balance. So I'm not, I don't have my hair anywhere near to on fire on this one. To me, this sort of seems like mm, okay, seems like a sensible way to run things. But I know others disagree, so I, I want to be fair. I want to be fair to that. Well, interesting. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Okay, so that was way easier, by the way. Those show notes were way easier than they were for the other one. Uh, this is just this is just a much <laughs> smaller act. It's much easier. Yeah. Uh, okay, so no action alerts. So jumping us on to worthy warnings. Um, it just sort of struck me the last two weeks. I don't know if I've said it, but crypto is a really dangerous thing. Like, unregulated actually means no safety net. And that if you lose everything, yeah, you've lost everything. That's it. It's gone. Uh, so two news stories caught my eye. Uh, so the first is that someone was successfully defrauded of $650,000 worth of crypto through a text message. Because what happened was they got a 2F, they were basically tricked into handing over their 2FA code for their iCloud to some bad guys who then did an iCloud backup restore onto their iPhones and uh, got the private key to the wallet, which was safely backed up to iCloud so that the person wouldn't uh, lose access to the private key to their wallet. Yeah, so be careful about your... So that's not any kind of an insecurity on iCloud's part. Nope. That is falling for... working as designed, basically. Yep. With falling is for a phishing scam. With falling for a phishing scam. <laughs> and then the other thing to remember is that crypto has a new buzzword that it likes to hide under DeFi or decentralized finance, which doesn't sound like crypto, but it is in fact crypto. It's actually worse than crypto. What it is, is software on the blockchain that automatically moves crypto around. So as well as all the dangers of crypto, you have the dangers of buggy software. And it's all irrevocable and uh, no central authority and no way to undo disastrous mistakes, as all of the investors in Beanstalk found out when there was a um, an oversight in the way they structured their smart contract, which made it a really dumb contract. And basically, someone was able to borrow money, temporarily give themselves more than half of the shares in Beanstalk, vote through an emergency resolution transferring all the money from Beanstalk to themselves, and then pay back the loan. It is all 100% legal. It all went through automatically because it met the rules of the contract. Everyone who invested in Beanstalk is hosed, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. 
So when you started this, you said uh, we were talking about crypto and unregulated means you don't have a safety net. Mm. Is it a true statement that all crypto is unregulated? That is the design. The intention of crypto is to be decentralized with no central authority, which is being pushed as an advantage because no evil government can do you wrong. But it means there is no policeman. No one anywhere has the ability to police anything crypto by design. And I don't see that as a feature. So even these countries that are declaring crypto as a legal currency in their country, that's still a true statement? That's yep. still unregulate, unregulated? Unregulated. So is this like FDIC insured is what we always hear about our banks here? This is the inverse that's of that. What you don't have? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Literally, by design, cryptographically attested to no one, there is no central authority. So this is, hmm. and this is not, I don't mean this is a pejorative, this is a description this is anarchy. This is an anarchist system. And that's not a pejorative, right. that's a description of the right. system. There is no central control. And people who have very strong opinions think this is a feature. And I think a lot of people who invest in crypto don't realize that and assume that it's like investing in the stock market. If someone defrauds you, you can go to the police and something will happen. No. That won't happen. Anyway, don't take my word for it. I'm just a guy on the internet. Take There's another uh, scam that uh, I don't remember talking to you about it, but I no. talked to somebody on one of my shows about uh, a uh, uh, scam that's going through romance sites. You so know, I think we were, talked about it last week. Did we? Okay. Or two weeks ago, yeah, sorry. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, it, we're basically where people... Uh, trick you into thinking they are the new love of your life and eventually get you to start investing in crypto only it's a fake yeah it's a fake site fake stuff it's not not even real yeah if they temporarily show you accruing money and stuff the only problem is when you try to take out your pretend money it all just disappears yeah yeah oh, it's horrible <laughs> anyway don't take my word for it uh glenn fleischman is an amazing technical an amazing writer in the tech sphere And he has written, I think, one of his best articles. It's one of those ones where you make yourself a very large cup of tea or coffee and you sit down in a very comfy chair. But uh, I think it's a superb article and I read it all. It took me me an entire walk. Uh, I very rarely read one thing for an entire walk, but I I started it as I left the house and I did an extra lap of uh, our housing development so that I could finish it before I got home. It was such an enthralling read. Um, And the headline, I think, says it all. Understand cryptocurrency, but don't invest in it. Uh, you must have much smoother sidewalks than we do. I could never read more than uh, two sentences before I'm going to hit a dip in the sidewalk or a route that's pulled up a, 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 a piece of the sidewalk or a driveway. Or I have mastered the art of looking past my phone with one eye. <laughs> okay. Because I walk along the towpath of the canal. It's a gravel path. It is not smooth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but touch wood, I haven't tripped in two years. I did trip once and I made a complete idiot of myself because I basically hit myself in the face with my own phone. <laughs> Since then, I've gotten much like better at I would both do. watching and reading at the same time. Actually, the, the funniest one I did recently was I was reading my phone because I wanted to know whether uh, Android Wear watches have fall detection. <laughs> okay, and you <laughs> fell. 
I didn't fall, but I, I thought of the irony of if I did fall and I stopped reading the article. <laughs> but if you, especially if you had an Android watch on, that would really, you know, be the ultimate. And it went bing, bing, bing. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, that works. <laughs> So anyway, uh, highly recommend the Glenn Fleischman article. Um, And while we're on the topic of two-factor authentication, which is what went wrong for the victims of those crypto scams, uh, a different way two-factor authentication can cause you trouble, as in basically never, ever, 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 ever when someone asks you to pass on a two-factor code, that's always the wrong thing because no legitimate two-factor asks you to forward it to someone else. That's that's like an auga, auga, red light, red light, run away, run away. So another way this is being abused, and Vice are reporting on this. So when criminals get a dump of credit cards, they need to find a way to use them. And they found a technique. They sign up for Apple Pay with a stolen credit card on their own phone, which will trigger two-factor authentication. But that's where they're striking. They're using the two-factor authentication bypass tools to try trick people into forwarding the two-factor code. And then once they have the forwarded code, they then have your card on their phone and they can tap to pay wherever they go. Right then. Right then right, and right. until you realize what's going on and stop them. And so that is, that is now a thing. And apparently at the moment, it is the easiest way to turn stolen credit cards into money is to trick people into 2FA. So be mm. careful. While we're on it, this this is very depressing, but don't worry, it's in the middle, so it's okay. Uh, Another PSA. So a lot of websites have gone out of their way to make it harder for people to scam you by having systems for verifying people, right? We're all familiar with the blue tick on Twitter. And uh, WhatsApp has a similar sort of a green ticky thing, right? Those verified badges are supposed to be next to people's usernames. If the same icon is inside someone's i someone's user avatar it's not real <laughs> it's just a jpeg okay. they have put it there there is now a scam with people setting up fake accounts on sorry real accounts on whatsapp with usernames that imply they are whatsapp support uh, oh. and they have the whatsapp green tick inside their avatar and then they try to trick you into two-factor auth scams and all these kind of things so people are clever. People are clever. So a tick box, anything, any information inside someone's icon is a lie. So just, you know, the tick box has to be where it's supposed to be or it's not real. And then finally, finally, with the sad face section of the show notes, um, there is a new mechanism for spam that has appeared. Someone has gotten clever. So a marketing company has figured out that you can use AirDrop to send ads at people because a lot of people leave airdrop set at anyone can airdrop me. And so visitors to Apple stores in the UK, Germany and somewhere else, I don't remember where off the top of my head, and I shut everything down while my Mac wasn't working so I don't have a browser open to go check. Anyway, in three different countries, you would go into an Apple store and you would get a, a um, an airdrop message telling you to buy a refurb from their website instead. Oh, Which is clever. Right. But it's spam. And if this pretty well takes off, then you're going to start getting these kind of spams all over the place. So make sure in your airdrop settings you have it set to, at the very least, contacts only. 
And then only if you have a reason to turn it on broader than that, should you turn it on broader than that. So maybe you're at a conference or something when you meet people in person, which does apparently happen. Um, you can temporarily turn it on to receive someone's business card or whatever, but I don't think it's a good idea to wander around with AirDrop turned on. And this is a new take on an old problem. There was a fad about three or four years ago where people who just like being that guy would sit on trains and airdrop pornography at people who don't want it. Right. And that right. briefly got us all to turn off airdrop. Well, enough time has passed that people have gotten new phones and forgotten to turn it back off or whatever. <laughs> so I guess this is just a timely reminder that the world is full of those people. So just just check your settings. Okay, that's enough misery. It's enough misery for most so. of us. There's one more piece of misery, but it's for a small subset of the population. So notable news, there has been another spectacular Java bug, like jaw-dropping spectacular. There is a mistake in the built-in cryptographic libraries that power a whole bunch of Java features, cryptography, remember, so security features, where if you send the key 0000, basically all zeros, Java goes, sir, yes, sir, that passes my check. You are validly signed. Oh, no. There's literally a giant... I'm surprised that one took so long to find. That's that's like the one you try, right? Right. Well, see, so the algorithm has a giant big warning saying you must check that the key provided is not all zeros because it will. the algorithm will otherwise, the oh. mathematics will otherwise falsely tell you it passes because that's just the way the math works. Oh. So it's in the spec saying so you must... So they knew about it. No, it's in the spec. They misimplemented. Oh. So the algorithm says you must check for zeros before doing any more processing. And they ported the Java, they ported the crypto library from older Java code to newer, more efficient Java code. And in the process of translating, they forgot the if statement. <laughs> so basically, like log for shell. All of your sysadmin friends who work in large corporations full of Oracle stuff are busy patching away. Everywhere. Wow. So buy them a coffee. <laughs> Nothing for us regular folk to do, but there's a bunch of people having a bad day. So buy them a coffee. Yeah. Okay, that is, that. I think I'm done being miserable. Um, a small note. Uh, so we all remember the big hoo-ha about CSAM. And Apple had three ideas, and two of them were utterly uncontroversial, un- uncontroversial, and one of them was, like, really controversial. Well, the really controversial one was put on pause, and it's still on pause. And the other two were introduced US only. Well, they are now being introduced US and UK. So this is the parental control where parents can turn on a setting on their kids' iPhones that if their kid receives an image that the iPhone locally detects as nudity, the iPhone will say to the kid, it's okay not to open this. We think you, we think it might be nudity and it's fine to just not do anything about this. And if you're being bullied, here are some resources. Basically, it's a have your kids back feature. It doesn't tell the parents. It doesn't phone home. It doesn't check for legal content. That is just if your kid receives nudity through the messages, it offers them some helpful tools that have been written by child protection charities. And uh, is this the one that does send it to the uh, optionally can be sent to the parents? No, that feature was removed. 
Oh, okay. So as, okay. as part so of... So this is just talking to the kid. It is just about protecting the kid with messaging from child protection agencies. Yeah, as I recall, it was written really kid-friendly. Very kid-friendly. what friendly. this means about, like, bathing suit parts and thing, you know, words like that to try to... Yeah. Yeah, so Be calm. the only mild controversy was the fact that it could have it, the initial proposal had it phoning home to the parents optionally, and that was removed when they before they went live. So okay. that's never been live, and so the UK are okay. not getting that either. So okay, yeah. so basically, Good. even though this is setting off some people's sort of trigger, because I remember this being controversial. This isn't the controversial bit. This is just good news for people in the UK. And is this this isn't looking at CSAM? No, this is this is nudity. Correct. So it's using okay. AI on the phone to see if it thinks the image might be potentially dodgy, and to give and again the kids for some people help. who might not remember the acronym CSAM, that's known photos of child abuse, child abuse, and something material. I'm I'm gonna just yeah <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go deep into no. it again. Just want to remind people what I meant, what we mean when we say CSAM. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is basically... Well, that's good. It is good, yeah. I had to caveat that because so many people have remembered the story and remember it being controversial that I basically wanted mm. to make it very clear that this is the good bit. This is, there is no problem here. Everyone agrees it's good bit. Yeah. And, but it's only the US and UK. Yeah, because they're, they're rewording it to be culturally appropriate. Right. So they need to have partners in every country. It's not just a copy-paste jobby. So they now have partners in the UK, and I imagine they're going to get partnerships in other countries and roll it out further, but right now, that's where it is. Okay. Okay, so uh, next thing, we have no top tips and no excellent explainers, but we do have two interesting insights. The first one is written by bureaucrats, and therefore the verbiage is dry and boring, but the table's good. It is the 2021 Top Routinely Exploited Vulnerabilities list from the US CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team, which is part of CISA. So I thought it was nice to know that the things I stressed about with my work hat on are actually the things that were most used to attack people. So that means that we were running around like headless chickens when we were supposed to and not when we weren't. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah, so uh, good. I was pleased. I actually posted it on our work teams. Um, and, hey, look, we were stressing about the right things. Go us. Which <laughs> um, is reassuring in a strange way. And then the other one I have is an interesting insight slash recommendation. So many, many, many times over the last few years, we recorded episodes where we mentioned Clearview AI. This is the company that scraped all of social media to build up a database of images, which is then ran through facial recognition APIs and then sold the data to, hypothetically speaking, the good guys. Uh, But in actual Mm -hmm. fact, a whole bunch of private companies, as well as governments in places we don't really consider the good guys, and it all got a bit ick. And then there was a giant big cease and desist attempt by the social media companies who were like, you are literally breaking our terms of service. And the whole thing was a giant big mess, and they're being sued out of existence. But there is a wonderful podcast I've recently discovered called Malicious Life, and I've been listening to the back episodes. So I have now made it to a year ago. I've, I'm a year behind, and what I ran into last weekend while I was out on the bike was a three-part series that starts by just telling the Clearview AI story. So here's what happened with Clearview AI. Which is actually fascinating how the company came into being and all that kind of stuff. I learned quite a bit just in that episode. And I thought, oh, cool, that's interesting. 
And then came two more episodes, which asked the way, 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 way bigger question. Okay, Clearview AI are an example of a company using facial recognition in a way we don't like. The technology is not going away. We as a society do actually have to think about what it means that we are approaching the point where our AI is actually good enough to do real facial recognition. So how should we deal with that? Should we allow law enforcement to use it? Should we put some sort of protections in place now before the technology gets ahead of us and we end up having to try retroactively deal with it? And it's not an open and shut case. It's not AI is bad or AI is good. It's AI can be used. It's kind of like a chainsaw. It can be used for good and it can be used for massacres, apparently, according to movies. There's a lot more to that, though, in terms of whether the AI is good enough to actually yes. recognize humans. That's of different of differing colors of skin. Yes, uh, and gender. So it's not it's not just a one or uh, one or zero. Is it a good or bad thing to use this use AI? Is is the AI good enough to do an effective job, regardless of race and gender? They go into all of the biases yet. in great detail, actually, and why you should care that the AI is not as good at recognizing some people versus others, and how that can have real world effects on actual human beings. With examples, yeah, and it's not just a little bit bad. Oh no, 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 for black women, it's orders of magnitude worse in terms of identification. So it seems like there, you're right. There is a point in time where we have to decide: should they be, the uh, law enforcement be allowed to use it? But they shouldn't be allowed to use it at all until it's good enough to actually be used. Yeah. So there, basically, there's a reason it's a two-parter because it's not just yes, no. They re- they like they do a really good job of telling you. Not stories in the hypothetical, actual things that happen to actual human beings here on planet Earth. Oh, okay. So it's, I, I, I was fascinated. It was one of those ones where I actually added an extra couple of kilometers onto my cycle so I wouldn't be home too quick. So <laughs> to hear the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a little confused on the name of the show. You said it was called Malicious Life, but the show notes say it's called Cyber Reason. So is this like a series within a series? Malicious uh, Life is a subset of Cyber Reason? No, that's a typo by me. So Cyber Reason is the company that sponsored the show. So Cyber Reason is actually one of the major vendors of cybersecurity products for enterprises. And Cyber Reason sponsored the Malicious Life podcast. But I'm so used to hearing, you know the way Ken Ray's podcast is brought to you by the Secure Mac people? Mm-hmm. That I just got, their advertising is so good, I wrote the wrong name down. Okay. So it's the Malicious Life podcast from Cyber Reason. Like the Naked Security blog is from Sophos. Got it. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. That just, does advertising work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well, that is all I have in terms of true show notes. Uh, but I do have some palate cleansing, and I'm just scrolling the show notes, and no extra cleansers have appeared, so you get a twofer from me this month, or week, or episode. Um, first off... I love Joanna Stern. I think she is one of the funnest and most insightful people in tech reporting. Um, Her videos are particularly fun and they're never long and they're always accurate and they're always insightful. And this one just hits all the right notes for me. She has an interview with the one of the main inventors of autocorrect for iPhone called Duckin Autocorrect. And she goes to a (laughs) farm with ducks. (laughs) 
And it's way more fascinating than I realized. That technology has so much more going on than I thought. And Ample have thought so much more about it. And she makes a really good point. We love to say how bad that auto predict is. She said, turn it off for a week. (laughs) And you will realize it is brilliant until it isn't, and then you'll be really cranky with it, but actually it's saving you from so much hassle. Anyways, the whole thing is fascinating and funny because it's Joanna Stern. So that's the first tip, it. seven minutes. But it's not like behind the Wall Street Journal paywall then? It wasn't when I clicked on it, which is okay, good. the day before yesterday. No, yesterday, Saturday. Um, so it, if people are quick, it's definitely there. And then the other one I have is a software tip that I don't think I've ever done a software tip. Uh, but one of the Nacilla castaways, no, I'm going to be careful, I don't give credit to the wrong person, so I'll just leave it out. One of the Nacilla castaways in our wonderful Slack channel, many, many, many moons ago, like a year or two ago, if not more, put me onto a podcast called The Changelog. And I've been listening right. ever since. And one of their recent episodes was an interview with a company that is working on, at the moment, is a public beta. They want to reinvent the terminal so it doesn't suck. What? They want to make it a mouse and keyboard native application so that you can actually do things like... So if you're typing a terminal command and it spreads over multiple lines, why couldn't you just select some stuff and then hit the backspace key and delete just that stuff? Like, why doesn't Mm -hmm. it work like text edit? Why do you have to do, like, control A to jump to the front of a line and all those kind of shenanigans? And... Why shouldn't you be able to just say, you know, click on one simple thing and get the output of a terminal command copied to the clipboard or the the command itself copied to the clipboard? Or why shouldn't you just be able to click one button and share the results of a terminal command with your colleague sitting at the desk next to you? Like, why does the terminal have to be as if it's emulating a serial cable shoved into the back end of a computer? Because that's actually <laughs> what our terminal is actually doing under the hood. It's emulating a VT100 terminal. Why is it still doing that in 2022? And so they just asked the question, what if we reinvented the terminal for the 21st century? So the app is called Warp. It's a public beta. It will ask you to create an account and sign in. And the only option at the moment is GitHub. So you have to have a GitHub account to play in this beta. Uh, They are very clear that they are absolutely positively not storing or even sending to the cloud ever the commands you type or the output those commands produce. Huh, so have you started playing with it? I have. I like it a lot. <laughs> it's it's really nice, actually. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, by the way, I've always been meaning to tell you, uh, I don't use uh, Control-A or is it Command-A? Whatever Control-A jumps to the front of the line. line. Yeah. I use all of the same keystrokes I use when I'm in a text editor. I hold down Command-Left Arrow, and I hold down Command-Option or option left arrow to jump word to word when I need to move around in a terminal command. Yeah, the Mac is the Mac terminal sucks less than most terminals. Okay. And you can use, is it the option key with the mouse to click in? But you can't just select some text with your mouse and start typing and have it replace. Doesn't stop me from doing it every day of the week. Though, oh, ditto. Because <laughs> does it work? Exactly, exactly. Because every, every other text going, box works like it? that everywhere. Why wouldn't that right, text right. box work like that? Well, with Warp, it does work like that. So you can run Warp parallel to the the real terminal and just start using it? Yeah, it's just an app. So you just double-click Warp and start typing away. How fun. Yeah, so I've been playing away with it, and my first impressions are that I much, 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 much prefer this to terminal that app. So 
I am certainly going to be contributing to the beta. And if I run into any problems, I will feed them back. But it's a very interesting beta. And the whole, like, listening to the interview with the guys, it's a long interview. Uh, I think it's an hour and 10 minute show. And their vision for how this could work within a team. So their idea is, so this is a for-profit company. So the follow the money was what I was listening for for the whole episode. Because I was not going to recommend it if I got to the end of the episode and I didn't have an idea that this wasn't going to collapse in a heap. So their business model is that it's going to be free for individuals. But if you're going to use it as a team, then you're going to have a subscription fee for the team features. So freemium. Okay. I don't mind freemium. That's reasonable to me. It works for Dropbox, works for loads of things. So there is a business model and the business model is not spy on you. (laughs) They are my two things, right? Is there enough of a business model that doesn't collapse in a heap tomorrow? And is that business model built on exploiting people's privacy? If there is a business model and it's not exploitative, then I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'll have a go. And so that is the case. So hence, it is here in the show notes. And there is a short video linked to a YouTube video showing the app in action. So if you don't want to sign up to the free, if you don't want to sign in with GitHub, then watch the video and then decide. But I'm playing. Well, that's that's really fun. I, it's, that's the kind of thing that I, um, I just don't have any imagination. It would have never occurred to me that it would be different. You know, that something like the terminal could be a separate app that you download that, I don't know, just, it's interesting. It is interesting. And my initial thought was, ah, yeah, whatever. And then I listened to the guy's chat for an hour and I was like, I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> this, this makes sense to me. This, this, this agrees with my sensibilities. And I do spend an inordinate amount of time in terminals. That is kind of my job. So this, yeah. this is very much up my, you know, in my bailiwick. So I, I've been playing with it for literally just uh, two days because I, I listened to the podcast on Friday and it's now Sunday. But I've been enjoying my play so far. So, All right. Well, I've downloaded it and installed it and logged in with my GitHub account. So I'm ready to play. God, you're quick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all I got. So two, uh, two palate cleansers and, uh, you know, there's our news. All right. That was fun. Well, we'll talk to you in another two weeks, Bart. Indeed we shall. Uh, I know one thing for sure, there will be security news. (laughs) (laughs) There is never a danger that I'm going to say to you on on a Sunday, sorry, Alison, I have no content for you. (laughs) Got nothing, nothing. (laughs) Never happened. And remember, folks, there's one piece of advice I give every single time. Stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like it? In fact, I actually like to get email from people who listen to the show. If you have a question or a suggestion, a dumb question, in fact, just send it on over. You can also follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. You can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways, including Bart. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show, like Chris, at podfeet.com slash Patreon, or with a one-time or recurring donation, like Kenneth, at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Seamus did after a little time away, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. You might even get a chance to meet Forbes and Sienna if you do sometime. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.